So when you die and you go to heaven, are you going to take somebody with you? Or could it be that, that you're going to be have, headed to heaven alone? When I was a kid, we used to sing a song at church. It goes like this, must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Without one soul with which to greet him, must I empty-handed go? As one of the pastors here, I, I'm concerned for all of you and myself. I'm concerned because the Bible says that one day when we stand before God, he will test the quality of our works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that a fire will come to test the quality of our works and wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. There'll be nothing for our reward. The only thing that will be left would be gold, silver, and precious stones. And surely bringing somebody who doesn't know Christ to come to know Christ is gold to God. It says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, he who captures souls is wise. And I'm concerned because most people in most churches are not actively engaged in seeking to bring anybody else to faith in Christ, and that's tragic. And some of us are saying, well, but I give my money so that the church can win people to Christ. Thank you for that. My pastor in my early 30s was uh, the great Adrian Rogers, pastor of Bellevue Church in Memphis, and he said this, I don't care how much money you give. If you're not endeavoring, endeavoring to bring souls to Christ, then you're not right with God. He'd go on to say, I don't care how much you attend church. If you're not trying to bring souls to Jesus, then you're not right with God. And those are strong words. Andrew Murray said this, there are two classes of Christians, soul winners and backsliders. You are either one or the other. And if you're not interested in helping people that don't know Christ come to know Christ, then I just wonder if you know the same Jesus that I know, the same Jesus that's in the Bible, because the Jesus in the Bible is all about bringing other people to have a right relationship with God. That's why he even came to this planet, is so that others could come to know God. You say, well, I need some proof that Jesus was all about that. Okay, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and this is a book about the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus. It was penned by a doctor, a physician named Luke, and we can discover here something about the leadership multiplication strategy of Jesus, the gospel sowing strategy of Jesus, and the geographic saturation strategy of Jesus. Pastor Chad asked me to do something a little different from the norm today. So what we're going to do is, instead of just looking at a few verses, we're going to take like a 30,000-foot view of Luke chapter 4 all the way to Luke chapter 10. And don't worry, I know we still have like 30 minutes, <laughs> so I'm not going to spend a long time, even though that's a big chunk of Scripture. I've read these chapters many, many times, but I never noticed till a friend named Mac Lake pointed it out to me, the geographic saturation gospel sowing strategy of Jesus. 
In Luke 4, we see Jesus traveling throughout a region of Galilee, sowing the seeds of the gospel of the kingdom. And here we see a picture of Galilee. And so it's up here, upper Galilee, lower Galilee. And Josephus, a Jewish historian of the day, secular, he said there are about 200 villages in this region of Galilee. And so Jesus um, starts his ministry there. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned. He had been tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues and was glorified by all. So what you see here in Luke 4 is Jesus, one missionary for 200 villages in Galilee. So what did he teach? What was his message? Well, you can see that in Luke 4 also. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, he, he's, he came to help people in their brokenness, experience healing and restoration. See, everybody that you know who doesn't know Christ is poor spiritually and broken. Everybody who doesn't know Christ is a captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they're broken. Everybody you know who doesn't know Christ is blind spiritually. Everybody you know who doesn't know Christ is oppressed in some way and is experiencing some kind of brokenness. So we have the best news Ever from the best person ever who wants to give the best gift ever. So what you see in phase one of the strategy is Jesus, one missionary for 200 villages. Phase two starts in Luke chapter five. And here we see Jesus still traveling throughout all of Galilee, sowing the seeds of the gospel. And he wants to set as many people free as he could. He wants to help as many people in brokenness, get out of that brokenness as possible. So you still have one missionary for every 200 villages, but something's different. Because if you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12, you see Jesus choosing his followers. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now, Keep in mind, these aren't the most educated and most cultured people of the day. These guys had marketplace careers like fishermen and tax collectors. And when you read these stories about these guys, you're going, what a bunch of knuckleheads. They're stupid, stinking, stubborn sheep, just like me, right? Listen, don't think just because you haven't been to Bible college or seminary, that you can't be used by Jesus to share the good news. Look what it says in verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, which is in Galilee, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So these 12 everyday commonplace people are with him as Jesus now reaches out in Galilee a second time, and the disciples are interacting with him as he interacts with other people. So phase two of this strategy of Jesus is one missionary team 
of 13 people for 200 villages in Galilee. Now we're ready for phase three. By the time we get to Luke chapter 9, we see this third step in Jesus' strategy. What he's done now, he's equipped the 12 and he actually sends them out. Look at verse, chapter 9 verse 1. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So these are common everyday dudes who are out now doing the work that Jesus has sent them to do. Now, based on what we see in some later passages, he probably, maybe, sent them out two by two. Jesus likes to send people out in teams. So if that's the case here, we've got six missionary teams of two for the 200 villages in Galilee. That's roughly one missionary team for every 33 villages. And then finally, we get to Luke chapter 10. This is phase four. Jesus sends out 72 followers, two by two. Luke 10, verse one. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So we've got now 36 missionary teams of two for 200 villages. That's roughly one missionary team for every five or six villages. Um, Jesus had a multiplication strategy. He had a gospel sowing strategy. He had a geographic saturation strategy. And so should we. I also don't want you to overlook the fact that prayer is a part of his strategy. Look at Luke 10, 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there's a lot of people that need to be one in Galilee, but there aren't enough of us to reach them all. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. Stage four of the gospel sowing multiplication strategy ends with kingdom advancement, great joy, and supernatural victory. Look at Luke 10, verse 17. Jesus says, he sends them out. They come back and report. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You are winning spiritual battles. Satan is being brought down in the lives of people. People who were broken have been healed. And he says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I want you to see what Jesus is doing. He's continually developing leaders to be able to do on their own what he did and then what he's calling them to do. So he has this gospel sowing leadership multiplication strategy and a geographic saturation strategy. So if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to imitate Christ, if we're going to walk in his steps, we too should have a gospel sowing leadership multiplication and geographic saturation strategy for reaching all of our neighborhoods, communities, cities, and regions for Christ. My dream is that all of greater Cleveland will experience a similar strategy down to the neighborhood level. Now, think with me. We say we're followers of Jesus, right? And we embrace the work that Christ has done on the cross to save us from our sins, right? 
and we say, well, I want to follow the ethic of Jesus, the moral ethic of Jesus, of love. And I want to be a servant like Jesus was a servant. And I want to be kind like Jesus was kind. But are we truly following the missionary strategy of Jesus? Because it's impossible to be a follower of someone and not actually end up like that person. Jesus said everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his master, Luke chapter 6. And that's the whole point of being a follower of Jesus, is imitating him in all areas of life, carry on his ministry, and in the process, we get transformed and we become like him. Somehow, somehow some of us have decided, well, I, I want to be a Christian without actually becoming like Christ. Or I'm just going to choose pieces and parts of Christ that I want to follow, and I'm going to leave the rest behind. Basically, we're followers who don't follow. And that doesn't make sense. I mean, do you really think Jesus walked up to his first disciples and said, Hey, uh, would you kind of identify with me in some kind of small way? You know, don't worry. I don't actually care if you, you know, carry out the things that I'm asking you to do. And I, I'm not really interested in you changing your lifestyle. I'm just willing for people to say that they believe in me and just show up at church whenever it's convenient. I mean, is that what Jesus said to his disciples? Is that what he's saying to us today? No, I want to be a wherever, whenever, whatever follower of Jesus. I want to be all in. I want to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I possibly can. I want to be a nobody telling everybody about somebody could save anybody. I want to really follow Jesus, not only for salvation, but for mission. So for you to follow the missionary strategy of Jesus, what needs to change in your life? And furthermore, what's the missionary strategy of CBC, of this church, to follow Jesus? And some of us are saying, that's the pastor's job. <laughs> and yes, it is the pastor's job. But it's your job too. I mean, you can read the job description of pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and every one of the things it says I'm supposed to be, I can find a verse in the Bible that says you're supposed to be that too. So many people in the church end up sidelined. So many of us have a spectator mentality. I'm just going to sit and watch. And I'll applaud at the right times. And I'll sing at the right times. I'll stand up. I'll sit down when you want me to. And he's not calling us to be spectators. He's calling us to get in the game. Yeah, but my life isn't fully together yet. All right, I've been pastor here for 33 years. Guess what? My life has never been together for 33 years. And I, saw, I know some of you are going, oh, is that true for pastors? If you knew everything there was to know about me, you would never come to this church. <laughs> and if I knew everything there is to know about you, we would never let you come. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
If you wait till all of your issues are gone before reaching out to others, you're never going to fulfill your calling. See, our transformation happens as we seek to reach others. So Jesus had a gospel sowing, leadership multiplication, geographic saturation strategy. And if we're going to follow him, we got to have that same kind of strategy too. Now, we've introduced to you uh, some tools in the past to help you sow the gospel in your world. And I just want to remind you of some of those tools today. One of them is called, Who's Your One? And that's not people in Indiana, Who's Your One? It's, Who is your one? Who's your one? And the idea is for you to identify one person who is far from God, and you're going to pray for them, love on them, work with them, give to them, and care about them in order to bring them to faith in Christ. So I hope everybody here has got at least one person that you want to reach for Christ that I will never reach, but they're in your circle, they're in your orbit, and you can reach them. And maybe that's why you are where you are, working where you are, living where you are. And some of you have done a great job doing that this past year. You've loved on them, you've cared about them, you've talked to them, you've given gifts to them. But now it's time to have the conversation. To talk with them about Jesus. And some of you are going, oh, that freaks me out, man. I don't know how to do that. Well, we're going to talk to you about how to do that. We have a tool. It's called the Three Circles, the Life Conversation Guide. Uh, you could pick this little booklet up in the foyer, and it'll tell you kind of how to do that. And, and what I'd like to do today is to illustrate how to have that kind of a conversation with somebody. So in your program, there's a half sheet. I want to encourage you to pull that half sheet out, get a pen from in front of you, and uh, a seat in front of you, and then uh, follow along because they're going to follow along on the screen as I kind of draw this. So, hey, Ryan, would you join me up here on stage, please? Ryan is going to be my person who is far from God. Okay, so pretend you're far from God, all right? Can you do that? No, get up here. So um, a lot of times what you're doing when you're talking to somebody that's far from God is you're, you're listening for an area of brokenness in their lives. And a lot of times you don't have to listen very hard because we've all experienced some level of brokenness. So everybody know is broken in some way. So you listen for that area of brokenness. So you, and you can say something like, sounds like you've experienced some brokenness in your life. May I share with you what Jesus has done for us in light of our brokenness? Sure. Good answer. Um, so I like to start out by drawing the three circles. And I draw the first circle of brokenness. So we all have experienced brokenness. There's a time in my life when I experienced brokenness. And sometimes I still experience brokenness. I can be a workaholic. I'm a type A obsessive compulsive. And I can get so focused on my life and my agenda that I miss my wife and I miss my kids. I've experienced brokenness too. And the world is filled with all kinds of bro relational brokenness, emotional brokenness, psychological brokenness, financial brokenness. Well, God never designed us to experience brokenness. In fact, God's design was good. In fact, the Bible says it was very good. So when he made us, we had great relationship with him. We had a great relationship with others, great relationship with the planet that he made. And we weren't experiencing that brokenness. But that's not what we're experiencing now. 
Because we know the world's a messed up place. There's evil, there's oppression and injustice, sex trafficking, political turmoil, countries fighting countries, people fighting people, divorce. It's all over the place. So how did we get from God's perfect design to our brokenness? And the biblical word for that is sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is violating God's commands. Sin is going my own way in life instead of God's way. And when I sin, I then enter into that realm of brokenness. And we try to fix our lives in a lot of different ways. I'm going to draw these little jagged lines to illustrate how we try to fix our brokenness. Sometimes we try to fix our brokenness by finding the right relationship. And you did. You have a wonderful relationship over there. Um, Sometimes we try to fix our brokenness with career. Sometimes we try to fix our brokenness with uh, entertainment, just getting away from it all. Sometimes we try to fix our brokenness with addictions. Uh, But here's the thing. All of this takes us further away from God's design. Finally, you got to get tired. Sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? And God says, I'm going to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And that's through the gospel. The gospel is a word that literally means good news. And I'm going to draw a little cross in here because that represents Jesus. He is God's good news. Because he says, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to live the life that you couldn't live. I'm going to die a death on a cross to pay for all of your wrongdoing. And you can experience freedom and forgiveness and healing and restoration if you come to me. So how do we get from brokenness to the gospel? Well, the Bible says two things, repent and believe. Repentance means I'm going to stop going the wrong way in my life, and I'm going to start going God's way. And believing means I believe that Jesus loves me, and that he died for me, and he rose again for me. And now I trust him. And when you trust him, you can have access to God's design. You can begin to recover and pursue God's design for your life. So let me ask you, Ryan, where are you in this diagram right now? Remember, you're lost. (laughs) Say right there. Yeah, that's good. Broken. So where would you like to be? Here. Okay. So let me just lead you in a little prayer. And you can actually follow this diagram. Basically, Lord, I thank you that you have a good design for my life, but I know that I have sinned and I'm broken Mm -hmm. and I've tried to heal my brokenness in all the wrong ways. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. Right now, I repent and turn from my way and I believe in Jesus. Help me to recover and pursue God's design for my life. Would you like to pray this prayer? Say yes. Yes. All right. Okay. Thank Ryan for being my uh, partner here. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys to do something that's going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of you. And here's what I want you to do. Flip your paper over, and you have one and a half minutes to share this with a neighbor, okay? It's three circles, three arrows, nine words. You might not get all the words right. I'd be surprised if you do. That's okay. And we are going to take this off the screen, right? Uh, That's okay. But I want you just to practice this. Why would I ask you to do something that I know is going to make some of you so uncomfortable? 
It's because I don't want you to get to heaven empty-handed. I want you to go to heaven and hear, well done. Okay? So, a minute and a half. Ready, set, go. Okay, thank you so much. Again, I know that made some of you super uncomfortable. If I was you, I would be super uncomfortable. But the reason I'm willing to help you feel uncomfortable is because I want you to be equipped. So you have an opportunity now three times to do this presentation, to hear it, to do it, to listen to it. And my challenge for you guys is to find your who's your one person and then sometime in January, have this conversation. And if you say, well, I don't know how to get into the conversation with them, blame me. <laughs> Our pastor said we're supposed to do this, so can I do it? Blame me. It's okay. Some of us need a little refresh. You can pick up this little booklet on the way out. There's a table in the foyer on the right-hand side. You can get the booklet that tells you more about that. Another tool we've given you is, is basically a tool that gives you the right to share the three circles. Uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We have a life houses strategy here that's tied into helping us saturate our geographic area with the good news of Christ. The Lifehouse strategy is basically you live in your neighborhood or in your apartment complex because God put you there and he wants you to reach your closest neighbors. So eight closest neighbors maybe? Uh, are you praying for them? Are you caring for them? And will you one day share with them the best news that you could possibly share with them? Some of us, we have been called to maybe higher levels of Christian leadership. You might be excellent out there in the marketplace, but could it be that God would use you in the marketplace, keeping your job to actually help launch a campus or to help launch a new church? I have a friend named Brad Briscoe, who's the national director of bivocational and co-vocational church planting for the North American Mission Board. And I interviewed him just a few days ago and said, hey, can you uh, share with our congregation some things that we need to know about how to leverage our marketplace for the kingdom? And here's uh, my interview with Brad. On this call with us. So uh, please tell us, what is co-vocational church planting in the first place? Co-vocational church planter is someone that has a, a, a job in the marketplace that they see as temporary. And their hope is that the church eventually grows to a point to where they can leave their kind of marketplace vocation and focus full time on the church. A co-vocational church planter, on the other hand, is someone that has a primary calling in the marketplace that they never intend to leave. So in other words, they know God has called them or wired them to be a school, you know, a bus driver or to be a web designer or to be a school teacher. Uh, and they want to weave that calling in the marketplace uh, to, to full-time ministry. Well, wow. so what is it about this current cultural context that we have that's going on right now that makes this very important for us to consider as a possibility? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so I think I'd probably frame it like this. There's a reason like inside the church and there's a reason outside the church. 
the reason outside the church is that we live in a very different cultural context today than we did even 10 years ago, certainly 15 or 20 years ago. So sometimes I'll say like this, more and more people are less and less interested in the programs and activities of the church. Therefore, as missionary-minded people, we need to figure out how can we get outside the church walls to engage in people relationally. And I think one of the best places to do that is in the marketplace. So that's kind of the, that's the issue outside the church. I would say inside the church is that we need to kind of diminish or blow up sometimes what we call the clergy lady divide. And we need to figure out how can we best activate all the people of God. So we need to activate all the people of God to engage in mission, not just a few. So I think there's that activation piece kind of like inside the church and then that, and there's that kind of that cultural shift outside the church that those two things come together we realize that um, we need people to think co-vocationally about their callings in the marketplace okay so so i'm a person let's say who's doing pretty well in the marketplace like my job out there in the marketplace um and 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 you're saying okay you should think about is god calling you to be a pastor of maybe a smaller group of people but all the functions of pastoring you can do. Um, how do I make sure that I am not overextending myself so that I am unhealthy relationally, spiritually, emotionally, and, and vocationally? How, how do I manage all that? Yeah, I think there's several issues involved, but the number one most important issue is that we do it with a team. So I think um, even you know, if, if you're in the marketplace, you might be someone that likes to start things. You might not consider yourself kind of the typical pastor shepherd kind of person. Maybe you're more apostolic and you like to create and start new things. Well, if that's the case, that's good. I mean, in fact, that's great in regards to starting something. Uh, but you need to make sure you have someone on your team that is that shepherd pastor. You ha need to have someone on your team that is more evangelistic. You need to have someone on your team that, that might be more of like a teacher gifted towards teaching. So I think the number one issue is you, you need to be thinking about if you if, if you think God is calling you to start something in the midst of your marketplace calling, just make sure you don't do it alone. Make sure that you have a kind of a fully functioning team to to start that that new venture with. you. All right. So just think in terms of hours, how much do I devote to my career in the marketplace? How much do I vote, devote to you know, more local church functions? Do you have any kind of a sense about time? Yeah, well, I think it just kind of runs the gamut. It depends a little bit on who you are, what your team looks like, and then what kind of church that you're starting. But but here, here's what I would say to that, I think, Rick, is that, and I know this is a little bit idealistic, but my my like perfect case scenario, what, what would this look like in the future? For me, it would look like having three or four co-vocational couples and three or four co-vocational singles that have a primary calling in the marketplace, but they all agree that they can give six or eight or 10 hours a week towards the church plan. So can you imagine if you had, you know, even two or three couples and two or three singles, can you imagine the, the relational connection that all those people would have if they all had a primary calling in the marketplace? Can you, can you imagine the financial stability and the resources they would have for mission and ministry if their primary support was coming from the marketplace? So they all go together, though, all committing to giving a certain number of hours per week towards the church plant. And really, if you have a good, robust team of 6, 8, 10, 12 people that can all give 6, 8, 10 hours a week to the church plant, 
then I think it's very, very doable. So what are some careers? I mean, you know, people all across North America, you're in touch with a lot of people doing this kind of thing. What are some of the careers that people are engaged in that do co-vocational church planting? Yeah, it is. I mean, one of, one of the, the most enjoyable parts of this role that I'm in at the North American Mission Board as the director of bivocational church planting is being able to interview and talk with different co-vocational planters all across North, North America. And I mean, it runs the gamut from bus driver, web designer, research scientist. There's a guy out in the Bay Area that's an anesthesiologist. There's a guy in the DC area that's a CIA federal agent. There's highway patrolmen. There's a guy in uh, San Diego that's a fireman, business coach, realtor. I mean, I, I would say you could name just about any marketplace calling, and I could tell you a conversation I had with someone that that is planting a church as they do that in the marketplace. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's very exciting to me. To call out the cult, uh, because I think God's got a calling on some people to do just what you're describing. So I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Rick. I love this guy. But what I want you to get is this. Jesus had a gospel sowing, leadership multiplication, geographic saturation strategy. You can see it clearly here in the book of Luke. And if we are going to follow him, we have to have the same kind of strategy. So the reason I'm sharing, who's your one? The Three Circles Life Conversation Guide the turning your home into a lifehouse guide. And then the idea of what if I keep my job and I raise my commitment to join a campus planting team or a church planting team, what difference could we make? We would be actually like Jesus in his strategy. So some of us are saying, okay, Rick, okay, Rick, what, what do you want us to do? Well, in your program, the response card, you might want to turn to that. I've got several responses here. The first one is very simple. I prayed the prayer to receive Christ today. I know Ryan and I were kind of play acting a little bit, but I just heard out in the foyer, there was a lady here in the last service. When I did that in the previous service, she just went broken. That's me. I need Christ. And so maybe that's you today. And and your response is, I need to receive Christ. Christ because I need to reconnect with God's design for my life. Check that box. Put it in the offering basket when it comes around a little bit later. I hope all of us will pray the Luke 10:2 prayer at 10:02 every day. Set your watch, your clock, your phone to 10:02 when it goes off, whether you're alone or with a group of people, just say, "Hey, can we take just a couple seconds? I want to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into the harvest." And you might want to pray that one of those laborers he sends will be you. Uh, the next one is, I will share the three circles with my who's your one friend. And I'm encouraging you to make a goal of having that conversation sometime in January. The next one is, I will show that I care by exploring what it would like would look like for me to join the Strongsville Brunswick campus team. You check that box, Josh Stone, our lead uh, pastor there at that campus, love to hear from you. And then finally, I'm going to show that I care about exploring what it would look like for me to join a new church planting team as a co-vocational leader. We've got a meeting that's going to happen on January the 12th at 630 right here at CVC. We'd love to have you be a part of something like that. Um, So put that in the offering basket when it comes around a little, little bit later. In 1877, a man named Charles Luther heard the Reverend A.G. Upham tell a story 
about a young man who was about to die. He had only been a Christian for one month, and he was concerned because he had so little time to serve Christ. And he said this, this young man who's about to die, I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going, but must I go empty-handed? So that question from a dying man, must I go to heaven empty-handed, weighed heavily on the heart of Charles Luther, and it prompted him to write this song. Must I go and empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet? Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him? Must I empty-handed go? Oh, ye saints, arouse, be earnest. Up and work while it's yet day. Ere the night of death overtake you, strive for souls while you still may. Father in heaven, I pray for all of us here that we would um, not go to heaven empty-handed, that we would have works to present to you that are gold and silver and precious stone. And we know that souls in the sight of God are like gold. And so I pray that each one of us would accept our responsibility to share the good news of Jesus with the people that you have uniquely designed us to share the good news of Jesus with. So Lord, we love you. We need you. None of this will happen unless you stir up our hearts, unless you put inside us the very spirit of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be people that just follow Jesus from afar. We don't want to be people that just follow pieces and parts of the life of Christ that are convenient. We want to be people who are full followers of Jesus, including being missionaries in our networks, in our marketplaces, and in our neighborhoods. So stir us up, God. Must we go empty-handed? No. No. Help us to go to heaven and take as many people with us as we possibly can. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.